word. Uh, Today's scripture passage is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it arose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. But when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where they stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So I grew up in Winston-Salem, not too far from here. And when I was growing up, uh, most of my life, I, I lived uh, around people who were pretty similar to me. Uh, I was at a public high school, and I was around different sorts of people, but for the most part, I didn't have any regular contact with people who thought much differently than me, or lived much differently than me, or looked much differently than me. And when I went to college, it was more of the same. There was a broader group of people, but generally, the places where I spent most of my time and the people who I hung out with were pretty much just like me. After college, I ended up spending a year in China as a missionary. And while I was there, nobody was like me. But when I came to China, I came thinking of myself as the expert, right? I was the missionary. I was the person preaching the gospel. And so I didn't really have an opportunity to learn anything from that culture. 
But fast forward in my life a few years later, after I had completed my seminary training, I had the opportunity to move into the middle of the city in Boston. Particularly, we went to this neighborhood uh, called Dorchester. And Dorchester, still to this day, is a community populated by mostly people who are very different than me. People from the African island of Cape Verde, people from Vietnam and the Caribbean, Irish Catholics, Haitians, really any and every classification of people that you could think of lived in the town of Dorchester. But you know, there, what, there weren't a lot of, there were not a lot of people from suburban neighborhoods in North Carolina. And yet, still, when I moved to that community with my seminary degree in hand, I came with the same mindset that I always had. Part of me thought, hey, I'm going to move into this town, and I'm going to bring the gospel. I'm going to move into this town, and I'm going to teach people what they need to hear. But what I found out, living there for the next few years, was that God had been in Dorchester much longer than I had. As I lived my life in that little community, as I got to know the people, as I became a part of that church, I can tell you that Jesus taught me, those people taught me more about Jesus than I ever taught anybody. See, the church we were a part of really opened my eyes to see how much bigger of a Savior that we really have. It showed me things, the people of that church showed me things that I never could have seen from my limited experience and my limited perspective growing up in this one type of community. It actually exposed to me uh, a little bit of a, a cultural arrogance that I had carried with me throughout my life. And it showed me that I had this sense of my own expertise that was actually preventing me from seeing the full glory of God. And I tell you that story about myself because I think at this, the center of this passage is a very similar dynamic. See, this is a story about a group of foreigners who come seeking a savior, and they are received by a group of experts who read them the scriptures, tell them where the Messiah is supposed to be, but then they totally dismiss their claims. And at the end of the passage, we see that the outsiders are the ones who end up worshiping Jesus while the experts are left on the outside themselves. So as we look at it today, I think there's a lot of important lessons for us to learn. Um, and I want us to see here from our passage that God's kingdom is a multicultural, multinational, and unexpected kingdom. Secondly, I want us to see that the people who think they have the kingdom already, should be on guard. And third, I want us to see that there is a daily battle taking place in our hearts, and we must surrender. All right, so let's jump into it. Let's talk about God's kingdom. Uh, the very first verse of this passage, it says that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east. Now, first thing worth noting is Matthew doesn't tell us how many magi came from the east. Traditionally, we have these three, we sang about the three kings today, but that's, that's all tradition. We, we got that from the fact they brought three gifts. But 
It was probably more than that. It was probably quite an entourage to travel this great distance to come and meet the king. Um, but who are they? Who are these people? What exactly is a magi? The best way I was thinking of explaining it is I recently I bought this pop socket for the back of my phone. Does anybody have these? I don't know if this means I have small hands or what, but this is, I have it. I'm a little embarrassed about having it, I guess, now. But on the back of this, there's some constellations. And I got it because I thought it looked kind of cool, you know, didn't think much of it. But since the time I bought it, I have had multiple conversations with people who say, hey, you're really into astrology, huh? <laughs> and I look at it like, no. I, I have to explain to these people that, that there is a difference between astrology, which is looking to the stars and learning your signs and trying to get some vague message about your future, and astronomy, which is science, the study of the, the constellations and the skies. They're, they're different things. But it's not totally shocking that people would confuse that because that is a distinction that hasn't always been. Those two things used to be very much connected. It used to be the case that the people who were the greatest experts in studying the skies and looking at the stars were also people who were considered experts at looking at the skies and determining what they mean. That's what the Magi were. They were kind of a combination of astronomers and astrologists. They were people who looked at the movement of the skies and the movement of the stars, and they tried to determine what could this mean. We tend to think of the Magi today as these noble and honorable kings. That's always how they look in our nativity scenes. And, and certainly they were kind of foreign dignitaries. But the Jewish people generally did not think highly of these types of men. They didn't think highly of this kind of study. They thought that these guys were superstitious pagans who were worshiping the skies. And I didn't realize it till this week as I was studying this passage, but did you know there's other magi in scripture? Did you know this same Greek word describes a couple of other people? In the book of Acts, one guy named Simon and another guy who's named Bar-Jesus but whenever we translate that word, the same word, the same root word, they translate it as sorcerer, right? Simon the sorcerer, Simon the magician. In other words, the magi, they weren't some revered group of people, but they were considered heathens, people in need of correction. They were men who taught people to look at the creation instead of looking at the creator. And so this group of people, these magi, they were really outsiders. They were pagans coming from the courts of Arabia and Persia. They served a pagan king and they worshipped a false god. And so is it starting to make sense to you? Are you starting to get a new understanding of why Matthew would have included this story? Of all the things, right, that he could have told us about the birth of Jesus, this is the one story that he wants us to see. Jesus, he's showing us here, is the fulfillment of Christ's promise 
to rescue everybody. Christ promised to pull in all the nations. Like the prophet says in Hosea, he said, I will say to those who are called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Last week, we saw the story where God announced his, himself to the shepherds. It was the moment where he appealed to the least and the last and the overlooked people of Israel. But this week, he goes even further than that. This week, Matthew is trying to tell us that the, the scope of salvation that is coming is way bigger than we could have ever expected. It's, it's going across national lines. It's going across political lines. It's going across to people from other religions, and he is bringing them all in to himself. And it's really incredible how he does it. I don't know how else to say this. Uh, I hope it's not too offensive, but guys, astrology is nonsense. I, I don't know what else to say. It's, it's, it's not real. <laughs> okay, Astrology is, is, you know, I think they write horoscopes and fortune cookies in the same building. You know, it's, it's kind of vague, like this is something that's going to happen to you. Um, but what's really interesting is that God uses this superstitious worldview and these guys' superstitious beliefs. He uses them to draw them to the truth. He uses that to draw them to himself. They find the star in the sky. And we don't have a lot of time to talk about the star this morning, but if that's something that interests you, there are a lot of people who have written on this. One of my uh, college or one of my seminary professors wrote a book on it called The Great Christ Comet, where he worked with some guys from NASA. This just came out a couple of years ago and presents a, a really detailed and intricate case on how this could have happened. It's actually a beautiful like coffee table style book too, if you want to check it out. Um, but the truth is, even if you don't buy that this was some uh, particular event that we can trace back in history, even if you think it's just a miracle, that's totally fine too. It doesn't change the fact that at the end of this star is definitely a miracle, right? At the end of this star is the, the Son of God in the flesh. So that's a miracle we all have to deal with. But I do think there's some interesting cases to talk about what this star was and, and how it happened. Um, but at the very least, whatever God used in that moment, he used it to lead these men to where Jesus was born. But did you notice that he doesn't bring them straight to Jesus by the star? Where do they go first? Do you remember from the story? Yeah, they go to Herod. They go to Jerusalem. And, and what happens when they get to Herod? What, what do they consult once they reach him? They look at the scriptures, right? The experts in the law pull out the scriptures, and it tells them that Jesus is going to be born in Jerusalem. And I think it still kind of works that way, right? We just preached it on the 1st of January, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? That there's still a way that God's world, his creation, points us to who he is. But it doesn't get us all the way there. We need the scripture. We need God's revelation to bring it to completion, to show us uh, the, the full extent of the salvation that he's bringing. And so the, his creation can, can bring us to those questions, but only his scripture can finally answer them. And that's what he does. 
He brings them to the scriptures, and the scriptures bring them to Bethlehem. And then it says that when these men finally reached Bethlehem, verse 11, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshipped him. This is the picture Matthew wants us to see. These are Christ's first worshipers. Yeah, these men, they, they came by following a star. But who sent the star? It's the Lord. He is gathering up his people from a distant nation, from a distant culture, from an unlikely background. And that's a picture of what God's kingdom looked like. That's a picture of what God's salvation looks like back then, but also still today. But that's not all. As we keep looking at these guys, we also see that there, there's another thing uh, that we need to recognize as we, as we think about just how these men were received by the courts. The people who think they have the kingdom already should be on guard. That's the second thing we see in this passage. Now, I'll preface this by saying, I really love being Presbyterian. I see we got some other Presbytery folks here with us this morning. That's great. I love being Presbyterian. I love the precision and the thoughtfulness of Reformed theology. I love the, the mission of our tradition as a whole. Uh, I think, honestly, that we do things well. And, and maybe we do them better than some other people. You know, I, I, I think highly of Presbyterianism. I actually, there's this funny clip of R.C. Sproul, who's a famous Presbyterian pastor. He was at a conference in the early 2000s, and he's on one of those panels where they ask a bunch of pastors different questions. But the panel was mostly Baptist. And so at the beginning of the, the questioning time, the, the moderator says, hey, you know, I see we've got a lot of Baptists out here today, R.C. How are you feeling? And he looks around and he says... More Baptists than Presbyterians? Well, I guess it'll be a fair fight. <laughs> See, I like that. I like the Presbyterian swagger. I think that's, that's good for us. It's good for us to know the scriptures. It's good for us to know our theology and, and what we believe about them. But after saying all that, we need to watch out. Because that attitude, that swagger... It doesn't take long for that to morph into arrogance. It doesn't take long for that to morph into hard-heartedness towards other Christians. 1 Corinthians 10.12, Paul says, So, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. The reaction that we see in verse 3 of our passage, when Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. It says that not only was Herod disturbed, but everyone in Jerusalem was disturbed by these magi who arrived and were looking for a king. And so, what do they do? Well, they go get the experts. They go get the religious leaders. They go get the people who know the scriptures, and they ask them, where is this Messiah going to be born? And Pretty quickly, pretty easily, they say, Bethlehem, here it is. And then, they send the Magi off to go and find him alone. 
you realize there is this complete dismissal of the Magi here? Not one of these experts in the law, none of these priests try to go with them. It's not like it was a long trip. Jerusalem's five miles away. They could have easily gone just to check it out, but they don't even bother. They don't even consider that there might be some truth to the things that these guys are claiming. And to be honest, I see that dynamic play out a lot in the church. I see it play out in my own heart, too. This attitude that is so skeptical that we are incapable of considering truth when it comes from people we're not comfortable with. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think it's important that we have our go-to set of resources and the teachers that we draw from, people that we can trust. It's good for us to have a vetting process when we're looking at stuff because there's a lot of Christian teaching out there that isn't great, right? There's a lot of stuff that, that claims to be solid teaching, and it's, it's not. It's not sound. But it's another thing to be so skeptical of everything that you dismiss people outright without giving them thought. You know, I think of stories that, that you hear today of people who are living overseas and they come to faith because Jesus appears to them in a dream. Or the story of miraculous working on the mission field. There's this spirit of arrogance that we hear those kind of things and we think, oh, well, I don't think that could be real. Because I've never seen that. And, well, God doesn't do stuff like that. Not anymore. I mean, you can almost hear it, right? You can imagine the experts in the courts saying, should we go? Should, should we go check it out? No. God, God doesn't use stars. <laughs> that's, that's the magi. God doesn't use stars. Now again, I want to say, the magi, they were not just some other kind of Christian, right? They weren't Methodists from the East. They, they, were, they were astrologists. They were coming from a foreign religion. I'm not suggesting that we need to start looking to the stars more or drawing from other religions more. But I do think we need to watch how tightly we cling to our expertise. The religious leaders were so sure that they were right about their interpretation of the scriptures that they missed meeting Jesus. And as the story goes on, we'll see that these same experts are so convinced that they are right about their interpretation of the scriptures that they end up crucifying the Son of God. They were so certain of their perspective. They were so certain that they could not learn from anybody else. And when you're in that place, that is a very dangerous place to be. In Revelation, God, he gives us a glimpse of what his kingdom is like. He says that it's, it's a kingdom where every tongue and tribe and nation are gathered in front of him. It is this global church with the perspectives of people from all around the world. And if we think that, that we, as a crowd of you know, 60 or 70 people in Mooresville, North Carolina, if we think we have the lock on truth, 
that we have every finer point of theology figured out, if we view ourselves as the experts and the litmus test of truth, then we are going to end up just like these guys, missing the forest for the trees, knowing all the prophecies, knowing all the scriptures, but then missing it when they get fulfilled in our midst. Here's how John puts it in his letter to the church. He says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into this world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. You hear what he's saying there? He's saying test the spirits, but, but don't ignore them. Don't dismiss them outright. The people who think they have the kingdom of God locked down should be careful. That they don't fall into the trap of arrogance. See, God is working all over this world. He's working all over this city. He's been here a lot longer than we've been here. And we don't want to miss it when he shows up. The final thing we see here in this passage is that there is a daily battle taking place in our hearts. There's a daily battle taking place and, and we need to surrender. So we talked about a few different groups already, right? We first talked about the Magi. These are foreigners drawn in by God. Then we talked about these teachers of the law, the experts, religious leaders who somehow completely dismiss God's miraculous signs without even a second thought. And finally, we get to the third character in the narrative, and that's Herod, King Herod. If you noticed in the story, Herod does believe when these guys show up, but he refuses to worship. Now, Herod's a fascinating person in history. If you want to read about him, there's a lot written about him. He is uh, a unique guy racially. He was Arab religiously. He was Jewish culturally. He was from the Greek world. And politically, he was Roman. Now, he claimed to be a convert to Judaism. Uh, that's how he ended up being in charge. But if you look at his life and the things that he does, you can see that most of his actions showed otherwise. And when Herod finds out that there's this new king in town, this child king, well, he takes that very seriously. He doesn't dismiss it like the, the experts do, but instead it says he plans to murder him. Now, interestingly enough, by the end of our passage, by verse 19, Herod is the one who's dead. And Matthew has a very interesting way of telling this story. You might not notice it just when you read straight through it, but it's, it's pretty unique. See, he calls Herod the king, King Herod, every time he refers to him, up until verse 11. Then in verse 11, when the Magi show up and when they worship Jesus, from that point on, he just calls him Herod. It's, it's, it's kind of like Matthew wants us to, to see that moment, that moment of worship as ending Herod's reign. That that moment of worship is 
in a sense, Christ's inauguration as the king. And Herod's response to the whole thing is, it's horrible, right? It's, it's tragic. It's horrific. And, and yet, you can kind of understand it, right? The Messiah has come to save God's people. But Herod does not want that if it means he's going to lose the throne. And so he sends these men out to this small town to massacre all the babies that have been born in the last couple of years. The contrast is really interesting, right? The Magi, they hear the news and they worship. But Herod hears the news and instantly there is murder in his heart. Now we all know Herod's the villain of the story. When I was in high school and I had to be in the nativity play, I always was Herod for some reason. Every year. I had that line that he has. That's the only line I had in the whole play. He's the bad guy. That's who I got to be. But you can also see how really, you know, it might have been a good place for me because Herod is our stand-in in this story. Herod is honestly the, per- the place we find ourselves most often. Herod is the reminder of the battle that is taking place in our hearts on a daily basis. The scholar uh, Dale Bruner, I, he has a quote, but I don't think I got it in in time this morning. So let me just read it to you. He says, Herod is not dead. Herod lives on in us, the people of God. And not just in the enemies of the people of God, he lives on in us. He lives on in our exaggerated ambitions, our pretensions, our self-centeredness, our greed for position, our grudge against God, our guile, and finally our human cruelty and our insensitivity. He says there are two kings at war in the world and inside all of us, Herod and Christ. We know who's going to win, but in the meantime, the battle rages on. See, Herod is in this story, he's a reminder of who we still are. Do any of you feel that struggle that I'm talking about right now? Are there places in your life where you are battling against God for the control of your life? Are there stars coming from the east? Places where you see that God is leading and wants you to go, but you're unwilling to go because of what it's going to cost. If you can relate to that this morning, if that's where you are, I want to invite you to repent. I want to invite you to surrender your will to his today. It may seem like a, a great thing to guide your own path. It may seem like a wonderful thing to go wherever you wish to go, but the truth is, like we see in this story, the outcome is always brutal and devastating. And it may seem terrifying to follow Jesus. It may seem like the very last place that you want to go. But as you see from this story, the outcome is always glorious and fulfilling. Consider this. King Herod, to protect his throne, slaughters the innocent children. He does what 
whatever it takes to assure that he can stay in control. And he did, right? He kept his throne. For what? Another year? A couple years? And then he died. And now his entire society is in the dust. But what about Jesus? What about his kingdom? In Herod's kingdom, he killed the innocents to save himself. But in Christ's kingdom, Jesus gave his own innocent life to save us guilty sinners. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. A kingdom that will not pass away. A dominion that lasts forever. And a kingdom that's large enough to encompass every border. To include every culture. To welcome every person who will come. So my prayer for us this morning is that we would surrender that way today. That we would humble ourselves. That we would listen and that we would learn from this beautiful, great kingdom that won't pass away. And my prayer is that as we do that, as we submit to him, as we choose to worship him and follow his lead, that we would start to see his kingdom coming more and more in our hearts, in our church, and in this community. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your patience, your mercy, your kindness towards your people. We're thankful for your power that you would rescue and redeem those people who seem the furthest off. We're thankful that that really includes us, Lord. We should not be here, but you have come and found us and brought us in. Lord, this weekend, as uh, much of our nation is honoring the legacy of Martin Luther King and uh, lamenting and repenting of a a sinful and terrible past history. Lord, I pray that our church, that the church, would not be the segregated place that it has a reputation for, but Lord, that we would be a witness to your kingdom of what an amazing God you are. Lord, I also pray that you'd give us the strength to surrender, the faith to follow, Lord, I pray you'd give us the courage not to fear so that we could enter into your glorious community. We pray in Christ's name.